Welcome to the final week of the course. This week's lectures are going to be just purely audio with the notes up on the video. So if you're watching this video, don't expect to see my face or my body at all. Uh, and it, if that means you want to go and listen to the audio and just look at the notes, that would be the equivalent experience. This week, we're going to wrap up the class on interest groups by looking at the dynamics that impact how it is that interest groups go about doing their work, as well as kind of taking a step outside of the sort of more direct political activity, which has been the focus of the first three weeks of the class. So the last two weeks, we've looked at the way that interest groups attempt to get their preferred policy outcomes by lobbying through the three different branches of government and what the different uh, types of lobbying look like and the ways in which interest groups attempt to convince policymakers uh, to adopt their policies, uh, either defensively by preventing changes or offensively by actually going for a change that they're seeking. Today's lecture, or this particular lecture segment, Personal Politics and Organizational Activity, I'm going to step back a little bit from the interest group fray uh, itself and how interest groups are competing within the political environment and look at how it is that interest group dynamics occur, why things happen the way they happen, and how it is that uh, this interaction between interest groups and the political system occurs. So as you can see on the notes, I have a person here at the center, and that person is saying, I want to do something. And this is the beginning of political activity. The, the beginning of any kind of personal political activity is the sense, the desire, the sense of uh, there's a problem that I want solved, there's a situation that needs uh, or wants some kind of action, and I want to do something. Everybody who gets into politics gets into politics with a similar beginning. I want to do something. Uh, whether that be, I want to make the system more honest, and I want to get regular people's input. I want to lend my energy to solving this problem, to you know, addressing climate change in a more forward-thinking and more aggressive kind of way, or addressing racial injustice, or making sure that regular people get their fair share of government service and government benefits. Whatever it happens to be, that choice to go into politics begins with that. Now, in this diagram, you can see there are a variety of pathways that a person who says that to themselves can take, and then there are questions that are asked. Now, I don't mean to imply that this is kind of the exact way that people sit down and go through this kind of thing. Many of you uh, listening to my voice right now are either involved in politics or going to get involved in politics uh, and uh, have gone through some early version of this process and possibly even have gone completely through this entire process. And you might be thinking, well, this isn't how I thought through it. This is not meant to essentially say this is how people think through it, but these are the outlines. These are the things that happen, whatever the inner monologue is, whatever the discussion with family and friends and colleagues and mentors Whatever goes on that gets people from not being involved in political activity to being involved in political activity, it's, it, this, this is the sort of schematic version of it. So, you know, people ask or assess, what are my skills? What resources do I have access to? What seems like the most effective pathway? And what's a sustainable choice? And the final question is actually something that uh, I think didn't get asked a whole lot in the past. And I've heard more and more as I've talked to people who are in politics, this is a question that more and more people are asking themselves. How can I actually make sure that 
whichever pathway I choose, and you don't have to choose a singular one, you can go through a variety of pathways, but whatever I happen to do, how can it be sustainable? I can't just throw myself into something and get destroyed by it uh, and, and hope to have any kind of impact. So what are the various ways that you could throw yourself into politics and uh, have an impact? I want to do something. I want to have an impact. I want to make a contribution. I want to make a change. I want to keep things the way they are, whatever it happens to be. Uh, well, of course, you know, straight down on the notes here is work for an organized interest group. And I'm going to note that one first, but I'm going to come to that one last because that is the meat of the lecture for right now. Uh, but I just want to note the other rejected pathways. Now, they don't have to be rejected in the sense that uh, if you go into interest group work, organized interest group work, and this could be paid or unpaid. Work does not necessarily imply that you're getting a job. Um, I don't mean to indicate that those people don't go through these other pathways first. I didn't want to complicate the diagram too much by interconnecting a bunch of arrows. But one of the things that is quite common is that people who work for organized interest groups, particularly when they work in professional capacities as opposed to uh, volunteering uh, on the side of whatever they do to make money, uh, people who, who are professional workers for organized interest groups often have done one or more of the other uh, pathways. And that's one way to get there, right? Uh, what are my skills? Those skills will change and develop as your life moves on. And so after, say, being a support for a policymaker, which is on the right side of the choice, which is a common entry point into political life, support roles, uh, many people actually choose this one first because this is a place where you can gain skills, you can make connections to give you more resources, you can uh, gain experience that helps you figure out what is an effective pathway, what are the ways that you can actually have a sustainable life in politics. So uh, supporting policymakers is often the first one, though I definitely, again, there's no singular pathway and there's no right career uh, move here and there's no uh, typical way. People go in all of the different directions. Some people actually, the first time they get involved in politics is they seek a policymaking position. They run for office. They run for school board. Um, they run for city council. Uh, they run for some weird office like port commission or, uh, you know, thing, fire, the fire district commission. Uh, I say weird because that's just, they're, they're kind of obscure. I should say obscure instead of weird. Um, but a common pathway in is support policymakers as a campaign worker. In fact, that's a very common first step into politics is to work for a campaign. And again, not necessarily in a paid position, often in a volunteer position. Um, but I want to do something. I'm going to go into, I, there's someone I believe in, or there's a cause that I believe in, or a ballot measure. I'm going to volunteer or even seek an internship or a paid position on a campaign and contribute my energy and uh, my time to getting somebody elected who then will go on to be in a position to make policy that I support. Uh, staffers, this is again another common one, especially with internships. You go to work for a city council member, a state legislator, uh, a, a, you know, a, a state senator, a senator, a member of Congress, a mayor. There's, you know, of course, I can just, this is just me listing elected positions that have staffers. Every policymaking position has a staff, and uh, that is one of the ways that you can contribute. Staffers are people who don't ever have to get elected or appointed. Staffers are people who often don't have to ever interface with the public in a way that to some people is completely obnoxious or difficult or frightening. 
Um, lawyer, obviously, is a way you support policymakers. Uh, the, many staffers are lawyers, but if we're looking at the judicial uh, avenue of achieving some kind of policy uh, outcome, obviously being a lawyer is important. If you're going to be lobbying the courts, being a lawyer is pretty much the way to do it, or some kind of support for a lawyer, like a paralegal or a legal researcher. So it doesn't have to be an actual you know, bar, passing the bar member lawyer. Um, think tanks are ways uh, that this is kind of, I would say, the, the more obscure of the, of the ones that are up here, because strategist is a type of campaign worker, but it's actually uh, a specific kind. Think tanks are people who actually uh, think through policy problems and do research and explore different uh, uh, ideas for how to solve policy problems. They're often very innovative people who are saying, well, here's this thorny thing that uh, has been uh, eluded a solution. What would be a uh, way of going about addressing homelessness or persistent poverty or, uh, you know, underachievement in uh, educational outcomes or uh, poorly organized uh, healthcare resources. Like these are policy problems that are thorny that have, have resisted uh, or have uh, evaded solutions, po- partially even possibly because of the politics of uh, the policymaking process, but possibly just because there haven't been enough innovative solutions, there haven't been enough ideas or the, or the, the ideas that are going to move the needle in this particular area has yet to be explored. And so that's one way to support policymakers. Now, um, one of the things that does get people into seeking a policymaking position, which is the other pathway, is that they often are people who are like, hey, I have an idea, or I this is a solution that uh, has worked for me or has worked in the private sector or that I've come up with by talking with people or by working in uh, wherever I'm working. And I'm going to, I want to get into the system so that I can advance this ignored policy. Now, that's not the only way, of course, that people decide to seek a policymaking position, but that's the other option. Seek that. Run for office um, or seek an appointed position either in the executive branch or in the uh, judicial branch. Uh, and that is, uh, that is the most direct way to have an impact on policy is to become a policymaker. It is not, I would hope you would know at this point in the course, after having uh, had me go through the various ways in which interest groups attempt to lobby legislators, executive appointees, and uh, judges, it's not necessarily an automatic way to make sure, to get done what you want, right? You run for office, you win a position, it doesn't automatically mean that now your policies that you got into politics in order to advance are going to be advanced, particularly if you're in a judicial position where you don't always have a choice of cases, uh, and definitely if you're in a legislative position where you're just one vote in a legislative body, even in an executive position, you you run for governor, you run for president, and you win, you aren't necessarily going to be able to turn that win automatically into the policy solution that you got into politics in order to achieve. Um, Obviously, the other way is now uh, over here in the bottom left is influence policymakers. You could be a donator, uh, which is connected to campaign worker in the sense that you're attempting to help somebody win. But in this case, you're attempting to help them win so that you can have uh, influence over their ideas. Uh, if you if you go in the upper right-hand corner, if you're a support policymaker person who's a campaign worker, you're helping somebody win because you believe in them. A donor is somebody who you know may or may not believe in that person, but does believe that they can be influenced. Lobbyists and activists are also people who attempt to influence policymakers. Um, 
at this point in uh, history, the summer of 2020, the activist role is seen much more visibly than it has been recently. It's, of course, we've always had activists and protesters and demonstrators uh, in American history. Sometimes they are more or less visible than other times. Right now, they're very visible. And what they're attempting to do is influence policymakers to make particular choices. That's what demonstrating is all about. That's what protest is all about. Protest is an attempt to influence policymakers. Um, so these are all of the ways outside of working for an interest group that you could do something in the political system. Why make the choice to work for an organized interest group? Um, well, it's there. You know, it's it it is a, it is a personal choice. This t lecture is called Personal Politics and Organizational Activity. It's a personal choice that this is the direction to go. Why work for, uh, you know, a nonprofit that is attempting to advance uh, new policy solutions for homelessness, for example? Uh, well, it may be that it seems like that is the way that aligns with your values the most. It may be that it seems like that that's the most effective way to actually get these policies enacted is to be somebody who's pushing policymakers to do it. It may be that uh, that's the avenue that's available to you personally because that's what fits your personality. You're not the kind of person who ever envisions yourself running for office. You're not the kind of person who envisions going to law school in order to become a judge or the kind of person who is going to make the connections that would get you an executive appointment, um, that it's, it's what's available to you. Uh, and also it could just be that you don't want to be so distant from the policymaking process that you're just a support person. And I say just a support because uh, that it can seem like the support policymakers is too remote from the influence. It's off to the side where you're helping policymakers get elected, you're helping them make their decisions, you're helping them uh, get their job done, but you're really leaving it up to them. This is the, the support policymakers role is for people who are like, I believe in other people that they will get things done. Uh, deciding to work for an organized interest group is very similar to deciding to become a uh, an influencer, uh, and in fact, uh, the uh, arrow that is not on this diagram that probably should be there, the additional one, is that people who work for organized interest groups often uh, work through the influencers, the donators, the lobbyists, and the activists, and they become those things. They become donators, lobbyists, and activists, or do those jobs as part of their job within an organized interest group in order to influence policymakers. And of course, the other arrow that's not up there that really ought to be is influence policymakers arrow ought to point up to seek a policymaking position because that's their job. That's their that's their role. Their purpose is to get those office holders to do the things that they want them to do. So uh, the people who work for organized interest groups often have to work through influencers to get to policymakers. They sometimes go directly to them. They sometimes work through the support people. They use lawyers. They uh, talk to uh, staffers and they connect with think tanks to get their ideas into the flow of policy innovations. So that's kind of the 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 I would say the landscape of political activity and then the different choices and the different kinds of uh, like ways of what your day is like or what your week or your life is like in each of these different realms. Uh, I want to delve, because this is a class about interest groups, more in more detail, not too terribly much detail, but a little more detail about what it is that uh, organizational activity within an organized interest group is like. Now, I should note that at the beginning of the course, I talked about two different kinds of interest groups 
informal and formal or organized and unorganized, there's no path up here in this notes for start an organized interest group. Um, the, that there, that's kind of implicit that let's say you want to do something and you look around and there's nobody doing the thing that you want to do, or there are people doing it, but they're doing it in a way that you don't like. Uh, or that you don't approve of morally or uh, economically or politically. Maybe there's an organization pushing for the kinds of policies that you think would make the world a better place or that align with your values or your material interests, but you don't like the fact that they take corporate money or you don't like the fact that uh, they you know, have big shiny offices or you don't like the fact that they primarily litigate uh, and, and hire a lot of lawyers. You could decide to create an organized interest group. Um, and so... This is really the, a similar, even though it's, it's, I would say, a lot harder, but it's a similar path to work for an organized interest group, which is start or co-found, collaborate with others to create an organized interest group, which, of course, you will then go to work for. Uh, and this does happen all the time. In fact, I have former students who have started nonprofit uh, organizations because they saw that there was something that wasn't being done or was being done that was being done in a way they didn't like. And so they got together with other people who had similar ideas and founded organized interest groups and then were working for them, uh, either, you know, at, with a decent salary or with a kind of shoestring sweat equity kind of salary. But that's when you, uh, when you see a hole in the organized interest group uh, landscape and want to fill that hole for whatever reason, you are, when you create an organized interest group, you are working for one. Um, so that's the same pathway. Now, all of the same things happen whether you're starting up a new interest group or whether you're going to work for an established one. The specific dynamics uh, are different in startups than in established interest groups, but the kind of overall kinds of interactions are similar. Um, right there on the notes, it says cooperate slash struggle with others. One of the things that is characteristic of all forms of political activity, because politics, as I've said numerous times, is a team sport, you are on a team, and teams don't always pull in the same direction all the time. They don't always just follow what the coach or the quarterback says. They don't all have an automatic unity of purpose and uh, of intention. Like even on a sports team, like a professional sports team, you think, well, everybody on the team, is, you know, their goal is to win, win the games, win the playoffs, win the championship. And while that is a common goal, some of the players are actually, you know, seeking to have a better contract or become famous, get more endorsements, stand out, use their position as a star athlete uh, as a platform for their political views, and that their goal is not, their primary goal is not to win. So one of the things is that always on a team, there is cooperation, absolutely, but there is additionally a struggle. Uh, and it's important to note and I think this is one of the things that gets frustrating to people who don't know much about politics and go into it, and then they, they think, oh, I'm joining a group of people who all want what I want. That may be true, and it may also be true that you think that they want what you want, and you find out that actually some people want what you want, and other people want different things. But even if everybody wants what you want, there's going to still be a struggle over how to, go, how to get there, what to do. Um, the top bullet point here is, uh, and this is where there's both cooperation and struggle, is setting the agenda and setting the priorities. Every organized interest group has a level of resources that are available to it either 
automatically like you know you you come into an organization and it has funding it has a budget it has uh, a mailing list it has a certain number of volunteers it has all of those resources in place um, and it has an agenda for how to use those you as a new person uh, may have a different idea on what the priorities should be you know for example if you join an organization that is uh, doing a lot of litigating and your view is that what you really ought to be doing is uh, getting uh, your members and your resources aligned to testifying in front of state legislative committees that are aimed uh, at pushing forward bills or blocking uh, bills that are obnoxious to your to your group, that you ought to be having a more legislatively oriented agenda, using your resources in that way. This is always... A struggle, and even you know, it, it even just—it's not that people even have different uh, you know goals or views. It could just be that they have different ideas. You know, someone says, "No, I think the better way for us to work is to you know find good test cases and support the litigation with our resources and our network of uh, aligned lawyers." And other people might say, "No, you know that that's 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 good. That would work." But I think we're better off actually marshaling our members to go and demonstrate and testify at committee hearings at the state legislative level because I think that's where we're really going to get our wins. Those people could easily, uh, you know, have exactly the same heart, exactly the same goals, and just differ on their opinion on what the most effective method is. Um, And I'm kind of jumping ahead here to the bottom bullet point, which is efficiently slash effectively using resources. Everybody who works for an organized interest group wants to efficiently and effectively use the resources that are available to them uh, they just are going to have different ideas about how to do that. Um, but I, I'm going to stay on bullet point number one, uh, or not number one, but the top bullet point, setting agenda and priorities, because before you even think about how are you going to efficiently and effectively use your resources, you have to decide what is it at the top of the agenda? What are our priorities? Um, most organized interest groups have at least a decent range of preferred policy outcomes, and no organized interest group, however large, however well-funded, is going to be able to push forward on every uh, agenda item with equal intensity and at the top of the priority list. There's always scarcity. No matter how much resources you have, there's going to be scarcity decisions. And that's what setting an agenda and setting priorities is about. It's about deciding how to make use of the scarce resources in the best way possible, but also which things to, when you can't have it all, which things to give to. There is, within interest groups, within offices of policymakers as well, within influencers, within lobbyist organizations, there, there are these same struggles. People are cooperating to achieve a similar goal, but they're also struggling with each other to decide which of the you know six things they want, which should go at the very top of the list. This happens particularly in parties. I've talked about this in, uh, I believe it was week, uh, oh, I can't remember exactly, no, excuse me, that was in a different class. Um, That was in the media class where I talk about how party leaders are the people in charge of a political party's agenda. You know, you may join a political party and become an elected official in that party. You might get elected to Congress as a Democrat, but 
and you know you cared about climate change and that's what got you into politics that's what got you elected by your constituents and yet the party leadership puts climate change uh, legislation further down the agenda than you would put it well part of your job is to work your way up to a leadership position not your job part of your task is to work your way up to a leadership position so that you can put that at the top of the agenda now that jumps me down to leadership versus rank and file and this is one of the things that does happen is that who gets to set the agenda who chooses the priorities in an organized interest group it is the leadership of that organization it is not the rank and file members um, the rank and file members of course have input and they are much like in any democratic society they have an influence over policymakers. The leadership of an organized interest group are the internal policymakers for that organization, and interest groups uh, display more or less level of democracy that the broader society does. Um, often the president of the interest group is uh, elected by the members. Uh, there's a certain kind of internal democracy. Sometimes a lot of the leadership positions are actually paid, professional positions. Those people are typically hired by the board of directors, which is elected, or by the president or the executive director. Uh, there, there are a variety of different forms that these organizations take, but there's some level of democracy, uh, and the rank and file have an influence, but it's people who are in leadership positions who have decided, like, okay, I'm not just a member of this union. I'm actually going to run for president of my local chapter. Or I'm not just a person who is contributing to uh, the ACLU. I'm going to seek to get a seat on the board, or I'm going to seek to get a job with the ACLU. Uh, and I and not just a job as a kind of rank-and-file lawyer, but as somebody who's helping to set uh, judicial, or not judicial, litigatory policies. So the leadership are the people who are the ones who are setting the agenda and setting the priorities and making the decisions about how to effectively uh, and efficiently use uh, resources. So the interest groups themselves, in a way, they mirror uh, with, a, as I say, a, a variety of different forms, they mirror the broader democratic society in that there is a distinction between policymakers, who are the leaders, who get to decide what the agenda is, and the essentially citizens or voters who are the rank and file members. Now, one of the other things that happens in an interest group, and this I discussed this a little bit in week one, but I want to just bring it back here, uh, is that interest groups are not just seeking to efficiently and effectively use their resources. They have to develop those resources uh, in, the, in the first place to use them. Now, for an established interest group, the development of resources may already kind of have an automatic character. There are already fundraising mechanisms there's the annual charity auction, there is uh, dues coming in, there are grant writers who are writing grants, uh, there are people who are speaking to large donors, there could already be an established network, but every organization has to continually develop its resources, uh, financial resources especially, right? Like, you know, you're gonna, if you're going to get annual grants, if you're going to have dues, if you're going to have wealthy funders, you have to, you can't just get it and then forget about it. You can't just say, okay, we have the money and now we're good. That's a continuous operation. One of the things about developing financial resources is that it actually uses resources to develop those resources. Um, and part of what interest groups have to figure out how to do is, okay, 
how much time, energy, and uh, activity do we dedicate to developing our resources? And that could be membership drives to get more people. It could be fundraisers. It's, it's, it can be extremely time-consuming and energy and even finance-consuming to develop more resources. Every organization has to do that. And that's actually a big part of what interest groups do. That is necessary to having the resources that you can then deploy on attempting to influence policy outcomes. That's the goal of developing these resources. You don't hold a fundraiser just to raise money. You hold a fundraiser to raise money to be able to further your cause. How much do you dedicate your efforts of your efforts to developing resources and how much do you dedicate of using your resources? That is a huge question and that's actually often a big part of the internal struggle. Uh, is in what ways do we develop resources, how much of our time and energy and focus do we spend on that versus on using them. And this is where uh, actually quite frequently there are uh, schisms or breakups that happen. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, some of the times people will start a new organized interest group because it's not that there's nobody doing uh, what they want done in the world. There's nobody pushing for this policy. It's that they look at the organizations and they say, oh no, they're, they're funded by corporations or they're funded by rich people or they are uh, you know, tied to other groups that I don't uh, approve of. I'm going to start my own. This is absolutely one of the things that can happen with the interest groups is that the ways that funds are developed or resources are developed uh, become problematic to certain people and they decide to leave and start their own or they're maybe not a member at all and they say, I'm looking at this organization and I love your mission, I love the policies you want, but I don't like how you go about doing this. Um, all of this is involved in what we could think of as the, the internal politics of uh, interest groups. So the point here for this lecture is that there's actually sort of two layers of politics outside of the uh, direct political activity that I spent the previous three weeks of the course exploring, which is interest groups interacting with the official political system, with policymakers and influencers and support people to attempt to uh, either uh, preserve the policies that they like by playing defense or by pushing for new policies that, that they want by playing offense. There are other things going on. There's the personal politics of how people decide which direction they're going to go. And then there's the internal politics of the organization, the organizational activities that represent an important uh, factor. Because if you have an inefficient organization that spends too much time developing its financial resources and raising a lot of money, but it spends a lot of money to raise a lot of money and doesn't leave a lot of money left over to then, say, pay lobbyists or to make campaign donations, then that organization is being less effective than it could be based on internal uh, organizational activity or internal politics. So interest groups themselves are participants in the political system doing a pretty straightforward thing, trying to get their preferred policy outcomes. And they're struggling with other interest groups to do so. Um, there are also then the personal struggles of people who decide which direction to go, uh, and then there are the internal struggles. So interest groups are embedded in these multiple layers of uh, political activity and these multiple layers of both cooperation and struggle. Um, now, there's more to be said about cooperation, but that's the subject of the next lecture, and so I'm just going to end this one right now and move on to that.